0: one,
1: Basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Munat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 349. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel for designing the show's logo. You'll find him online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks to All About Jazz for carrying this show on their website. They have a widget that they've created so that you can display the latest episode of the Jazz Session on your website. It's easy to get. Just go to allaboutjazz.com, and in the search box, type in Jazz Session Widget. It uh, installs quite easily if you have a, a WordPress site or one of those fun little blogging platform sites. And if you need any help, let me know. And if you install it, let me know, because I will feature you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. Speaking of which, if you'd like to get that newsletter, go to the jazzsession.com and click on mailing list and just type in your email address and your name and each week, usually on Thursday, you'll get an email from me that tells you who's on the show that week with direct links to the show and also gives you some links to other things, uh, sometimes to concerts featuring the show's guests or to uh, poetry events, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all at the jazzsession.com and just click on mailing list. I think you know the drill by now, but this show, although it's free to listen to, is not free to make. And that means I need your support to keep doing it. You can become a member very easily at thejazzsession.com slash join. There are both monthly and yearly membership levels, starting at $10 a month or $110 a year. And then the, the two higher levels, which are $25 or $50 a month, or $250 or $500 a year, at either of those levels, if you join now, you will get a copy of Anthony Wilson's CD-DVD set, Seasons, which is super cool. It's uh, a composition that Anthony wrote for four guitars that were built to be played together. Uh, It's a really beautiful piece, and both the CD and DVD are well worth having. And they are yours for free if you're one of the next two people who signs up at the middle or upper levels, uh, either monthly or yearly, however you'd like to pay. You may remember that last year we ran a pretty successful membership campaign to get the show to 100 sustaining members, and uh, since then, economics have caused some of those people to go away, and we've added a few new ones, but the show can definitely use some new members because it is quite literally what, uh, what keeps me going. So if you would become a member, that would be lovely. You may have noted that this is show 349. That means, if you're listening to this in real time, that the next show that you're going to hear is show 350, which also happens to be the fifth anniversary show. Uh, actually, tomorrow, if you're listening to this in real time, February 24th, 2012, marks five years since the first episode of the Jazz Session. So on Monday, I'm going to have a very special guest, a, a real jazz luminary and NEA jazz master, someone who has not been on the show before, And that will be both the 5th anniversary show and the 350th show, and I'll be doing some giveaways and all kinds of cool stuff. So be sure to tune in on uh, Monday, the 27th of February, for the 350th episode featuring a special guest and also all kinds of fun free CDs. Today's show marks the second official collaboration between the Jazz Session and Jazz DIY. Uh, We did one last month that featured both an audio and a video interview with Matt Wilson, different interviews. The video is more about the business side at jazzdiy.com, and the audio uh, more about the musical side. And this month is no different. We have two interviews with Darcy James Argue, band leader. At jazzdiy.com, there is a video interview with Darcy that talks about uh, running his large ensemble and the grant process and so on and so forth, putting on the large works that he does. And uh, this music, this music, this interview focuses more on the musical side, and particularly on Brooklyn Babylon, his uh, recent multimedia project. We'll hear some music from Brooklyn Babylon, and then my conversation with Darcy James Argue, and don't forget to go to the show notes for this show at thejazzsession.com and click on the link to the Jazz DIY interview, or just go straight to jazzdiy.com and you'll find it there. So, some music from Brooklyn Babylon, and then my chat with Darcy James Argue. My guest is the composer and band leader Darcy James Argue. Uh, it's great to have you back on the jazz session. Thanks for being here. It's great to be back. Uh, this is a companion piece to a video interview that's at Jazz DIY, which folks can find at jazzdiy.com that focuses more on how, in fact, you're able to keep the enormous uh, airship of the Secret Society in the air. Um, and so we're going to talk a little more ab- about the musical side here. We finished the Jazz DIY interview uh, talking about um, your mentor, Bob Brookmeyer, who recently passed away, and talking about him kind of from a band leadership point of view. But I wonder if you could say uh, just a few words, uh, or as many words as you like, about uh, what you gained from him musically.
2: Well... It was, you know, Bob's passing is really a, an enormous loss, um, to the musical community and, and, and to me personally. Um, I, there's no way that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, um, without having had the opportunity to, um, to study with Bob and to benefit from just his incredible, um, wealth of of knowledge and and his incredible generosity as a human being um, you know bob is someone who who really took teaching very very seriously uh, as seriously as he took composition and as seriously as he took playing and that's actually very rare for a jazz musician at his level you know like a lot of a lot of people sort of you know supplement their income with teaching and that's really all it is and it's very low on their priority list and with with Bob it, it was never like that and he was very personally invested in in um seeing growth from from all of his students and uh it was it was just remarkable and from from my perspective you know I had um you know I had, I had studied jazz in Montreal uh, at McGill University, and and had some you know had some very good teachers, but with Brookmire, this was my first real connection to someone who had seen it all, who had grown up in Kansas City, and seen the you know original sort of Walter Page Joe Jones edition of the Count Basie band play in Kansas City when he was eleven years old, and um, having just you know seeing almost the entire history of jazz firsthand and and being a part of so so much of it and like making those uh, incredible records with Clark Terry in the 60s and uh, the trio with him and Jim Hall and Jimmy Jewfrey that opens uh, "Jazz on a Summer's Day" and, uh, of course, his contributions to the Jerry Mulligan Concert Jazz Band and the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Band, and then um, all the amazing work he did uh, in the '80s and and '90s after he sort of came back from from the West coast and, uh, decided almost to, uh, it, was, it was an incredible creative Renaissance. It's almost like he decided to begin his life again, as if he was 20 years old and, and, and just starting out and like, imagine it at, at that age, I think he was in his fifties, uh, taking composition lessons again, like after all of the great work he's done, like the, the humility that, that that would take to, to then uh, approach someone like Earl Brown and say like, you know, I'd like to study with you, you know, and, um, his his example is just it's such an inspiring example of someone who uh um really just was thoroughly committed to to music and had such incredible high standards for his own work and was brutally unforgiving of of himself and you know he he has a reputation of being uh, a bit of a hard ass <laughs> as a teacher and that's something that that I experienced and anyone who um uh, who knew him uh experience but it, it, it he didn't allow himself uh, a pass at all you know he was uh, constantly trying to learn and trying to um develop his skills as a composer and 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 was a a rabid listener to uh new recordings and and wanted to uh, hear what was going on even things that he didn't really anticipate that he would like i mean it's no secret that he was uh, someone who uh really had a, a great bit of uh disdain for for classical minimalism especially philip glass but he would still check it out every time there was something new um you know he wanted to be surprised and um he's someone who um just was such an uh an incredible um Guiding light uh, in the in the short time that that we had together when I was studying him with him um, at New England Conservatory It's just uh, it was an experience that really molded and 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 shaped me and and um, especially um, kind of got me hooked on this whole big band thing that uh, I'm not sure would have happened otherwise.
1: You know, it's interesting because your your response to that question contained as much that was uh, maybe extra musical. As musical, it sounds like, uh, it, this seems to have come up a lot on the show recently that sometimes you get a chance to be with someone who is an original source and almost more than, although not discounting the technical aspects of what they teach you, but, but in addition to that, there's just all of the other things you absorb just from being in their presence about how to conduct yourself and, and how to move through the world and the world of music in particular.
2: Yeah, I mean, What's really valuable, I think, about the way Brookmeyer approached teaching is it was, uh, you know, he's, he's from the old school and his approach was much more of a, um, a, a mentorship approach. And I'm sure, you know, growing up in Kansas City, he would have had a lot of people kind of like take him under their wing and, and show him the ropes and kind of, um, in, uh, in, in a way that, that doesn't necessarily happen anymore especially in kind of a formalized educational context and i i i think that um you know there is a lot to be said for for that old school kind of uh, mentorship approach of like really taking someone under your wing and um Trying to, to, like, be really personally invested in their development as opposed to kind of developing, like, a one-size-fits-all kind of curriculum that, that is necessary in a, in a more institutional context. Um, and I think with, you know, it, it's a, it's a strange situation that, uh, the jazz world has found itself in at this point where it's, it's gone from a music that is, traditionally conveyed in more of a a sort of you know master pupil relationship something that was really learned you know on the road and and kind of learned you know picked up in a much more kind of piecemeal way to uh, a music where it's relatively rare now to find someone who doesn't have some kind of conservatory degree in music i think of of who's on the scene right now and i guess like Maybe Vijay Iyer is, is the only person who comes to mind who didn't go to school for, for music. And of course, you know, he has uh, doctorates in mathematics and <laughs> other, you know, it's not that he's unfamiliar with the academic <laughs> existence. Uh, but, you know, that, that kind of old school, um, you know, uh, uh, like, kind of school of the streets kind of approach is something that is, is almost wholly absent from jazz and, and I think that, there while there are clearly benefits from, um, the the institutional approach and there just isn't the the sort of framework of playing uh there just aren't enough live shows for people who are at very early stages in their development anymore for that old way of of sort of like learning on the bandstand to be viable there's definitely something that that is lost from the the loss of those opportunities and it's something that um you know no university program however well intentioned can really possibly replicate
1: well thank you i, I appreciate your uh... You know your insight into into Bob and we could do several shows just on, on him as a person but I want to I want to bring the spotlight back to you uh, you recently premiered uh, an ambitious multimedia work called Brooklyn Babylon at the Brooklyn Academy of Music here in New York City and uh, I wonder if you could for uh, the listeners give a little uh, sketch of, of what it was first of all so that people can get some idea as we talk about it more
2: So, Brooklyn Babylon is, uh, I guess you'd call it a multimedia piece. It's uh, something that I co-created with uh, this amazing Croatian-born visual artist named uh, Daniel Žiželja. And uh, he and I um, kind of got together about a year and a half ago and worked out the the scenario, uh, which is... um, the story of an elderly carpenter and master carousel builder named uh, Lev Bezdomny. And, uh, you know, Lev uh, has settled in Brooklyn with his uh, granddaughter, Mara. And, uh, you know, they have kind of a, a nice life in the neighborhood where they have a, a, a coffee shop, Anna's coffee shop, that they visit regularly and, uh, you know, a it's kind of an important part of their daily routine. He's going to get you know, a nice shot of espresso at, at Anna's. And um, then one day Lev is summoned by the supreme local authority, the mayor of Brooklyn, who reveals his plan to build the tallest tower in the world. Uh, and uh, on top of that tower, um, there's going to be this carousel uh that uh, he's commissioned Lev to build the carousel that's going to crown this tower because the mayor sort of has this old uh sentimental fascination with carousels and of course he wants you know Lev to to build it Lev then discovers uh eventually that the um the the process of construction of the tower has has caused an enormous amount of, of devastation and has uh, eviscerated the the old neighborhood that he loves so much in order to sort of clear room for the tower's foundation. And he's got to make a decision as to um, what his complicity, like whether he has complicity in this in this construction of the tower that is has you know uh, created such uh, a, a a scar across the across the neighborhood that that uh, that he loved and uh, he's got to figure out what his what his response to this will be So the story is told through uh, hand-painted animation that uh, Daniel uh, has created and, and so he, um, he paints on, on wood actually, he paints on a plywood surface, uh, mainly sort of in, in blacks and, and whites and beiges and some reds and uh, then there's a, he, he will take a photograph of the painting and then he'll sort of make a slight change to the painting and then take another photograph so it really sort of captures the process of painting as it's happening and then when all of these photographs are assembled into animation it creates this sort of you know seamless transition from one scene to the next scene and creates the sort of illusion of of motion in a, in a very kind of like old-school hand-painted kind of way um, and so that's projected onto a giant scrim, and then, uh, in front of that scrim, there's this, uh, sort of, uh, C-shaped band shell, uh, constructed from a series of platforms that all the horns, uh, from the Big Band, the 14 horns of Secret Society, are all sort of standing on these individual, um, platforms, each one sort of higher than the other one. If you can imagine, uh, a C that is low, near the sort of end points of the sea and like gradually ramps up to the highest point being the center of the sea. Um, that's sort of what the platforms look like. And then in the center of the sea, we have the, uh, the rhythm section guitar, piano, bass and drums. And, uh, the band is, uh, costumed it's sort of in the style of uh nineteen twenties or nineteen thirties uh workers there's some uh players in in sort of overalls construction overalls and other players who look sort of more um uh you know maybe they work in a grocery store or you know maybe they they work like uh as a uh, you know as as an accountant or something like that so there's like kind of a range of styles being displayed on on stage and then behind the scrim where the animation happens, the wonderful thing about scrim is you can make it either opaque or transparent depending on how you light it. So um behind that scrim there's this enormous platform and uh, uh suspended in front of this platform is this canvas, this 40-foot wide canvas that um, Danielle paints on live. Uh, in front of the audience um, so you see this enormous painting take shape throughout the course of the of, of the of the show and that sort of gives that that additional element of, of having the um, the visuals be created live in front of you in a way that I guess you know to use an old-school theatrical term reveals the means of production right and that that's part of the aesthetic of the show since there's so much um, um, it has so much to do with construction and it has so much to do with sort of revealing the construction of, of things of revealing how the carousel is made, revealing how the tower is built, that we also wanted to build that into the way we designed the show and, and sort of showing how the painting is made and, um, kind of, uh, presenting the musicians in a way where, um, every single musician is visible from the audience and, um, Which isn't always the case when in a traditional big band setup often you can't really see exactly what the third trombone player is doing because, you know, it's it's like hidden behind a row of saxophones. So like showing each individual musician in the setup, I think gives the audience a more vivid sense of how each player is contributing to the sound.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There is so much in that description that is—it's uh, mind-boggling to imagine the first time you and Danielle got together, you know, with <laughs> just to shake hands and say, "What are we going to do?" Uh, so I'm not exactly sure what to start, other than to say, uh, or to ask, when you, when the two of you began creating uh, this work, was it was it important first to have the story to hang the rest of it on? Did that was that the central yes. starting place?
2: Yes, I mean, we got together and we sort of talked generally about, um, sort of the aesthetic. And I mentioned, like, it, it should be a story about Brooklyn. Uh, and it should have that kind of feeling of, of being, um, kind of chronally anachronistic to have a sense of being, like, simultaneously in the past and present and future. And not being sort of too literal about what version of Brooklyn we're going to represent. Like, clearly there is the mayor of Brooklyn who in this universe is all powerful and, you know, Brooklyn w- maybe is not really part of the five boroughs. Maybe it retained its independence as, as, as kind of a, effectively like as a, as a city state, um, uh, in, in this world. And so, and we sort of bounced a few ideas and uh, off each other initially, and then um, Daniel kind of came back with this scenario of the carousel builder and and the mayor and the tower and um, the reference to um, uh, if you know the Bruegel painting the 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 Fall of Icarus um, that there's like a, a a representation of the the Tower of Babylon in that painting that is kind of a reference point for this Tower of Brooklyn, um, and uh, and then. From there, there were, you know, we kind of went back and forth a little bit on, on fleshing out the particular details of, of exactly how the story would be told and, like, for instance, what Lev's motivation would be for being a part of this project and, um, how, uh, we, his granddaughter Mara ended up being kind of a point of view character for the audience. She's someone who is initially Um, much more skeptical of the mayor's plan than Lev is and, and sort of is more kind of um, sort of seeing a little bit further into the future than, uh, than Lev is and more aware of like the consequences of of what this tower is likely to be, whether, whereas Lev is more wrapped up in um, just the, uh, the, the prestige of the project and the ability to create something on a grand scale and is not really um, necessarily, uh, um, Aware of what the consequences of that might be at the very beginning. Uh, once, once we sort of had uh, a scenario uh, fleshed out, then Daniel started uh, to paint, and he he w- he would paint the storyboards for. Well, he would paint the um, the the elements of the of the animation. So you know, he as I mentioned, he you know create a painting and then like take a photograph of that and then like you know make changes to the painting and. Um, and then he would send me essentially the photographs before they had been combined into into the animation, so essentially, what I had was um storyboards uh and at that point, there was no uh real sense of how long each shot would last or like what the transition between these frames would be like know so he just kind of sent me enough uh, of of the sort of keyframes of the animation for the story to be obvious and then from that point it was up to me to kind of construct the um the music and to figure out okay well I want I want you know this frame of animation to coincide like her beat 4 of bar 33 and then I want like this frame of animation to go here and uh, you know Daniel is is not um, you know he's a a very uh Sophisticated listener, but he 's not trained in in, in you know music notation doesn 't read music notation, so I would have to create kind of a a a, a mock up on the computer of what and i say mock up it 's more like a mockery of, of what the music might sound like <laughs> and hope he didn 't hate it and like send it to him with extreme caveats of like this is going to sound much better when live musicians play it, but for now. Here, you know, here's something that at least gives you a sense of, of like, the real-time structure of the music, uh, so you have something to animate against. So he would take these temp tracks and then create the animation, sort of based on what I had given him of, like, where I wanted these sort of key points to land. But then, you know, as he creates it, obviously... You know, I'm imagining a certain type of visual storytelling, and and he's discovering as he's creating the animation, but no, this section needs to be longer, or this section needs to happen earlier, or, you know, Darcy wanted, you know, this point to land with the music, but I think it's actually better if this point lands with it. So there was a there was a lot of kind of back and forth about that about um you know how things would would line up and and in some cases there there were sort of chapters of this where i kind of had to go back to the drawing board and be like okay so then um i need to i need to add like another 30 seconds of music to this section and i need to cut from this section but the interesting thing is um a lot of the changes that we made that were um, made for practical reasons, that were made for sort of visual storytelling reasons, uh, ultimately, I, I feel like, you know, with the distance of perspective, they they actually ended up being pretty good musical decisions, too. Like, you know, um, there are sections where, like, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to go back to the way I originally had written them now. I feel mm. they're actually stronger with the cuts or the expansions that, that, that we made uh, originally just for practical reasons. It's so
1: interesting because, unlike a traditional uh, film scoring project, at least as I understand them, where the film is made and then you watch the film and write the music, this seems much more like uh, uh, kind of uh, creation at the at the same moment, where where as one person makes their part, the other person makes their part, and each feeds back on the other, and they're kind of constantly shifting. It sounds like a much more dynamic process than I.
2: No yeah, well, that was also something that was very important to us and that we discussed at at the first meeting because like we have both seen uh and are familiar with like a lot of visual uh musical collaborations where it just feels like very disconnected and it feels like clearly, you know, the visuals came first and then someone wrote some music that maybe tangentially Ha- feels like it has something to do with it or the music was written and given to a visual artist who created something that doesn't really connect to the music in any obvious way and we really didn't want that you know we we were both like very clear from the beginning that it had to be something where the music and the the animation were, were in a very close partnership and had a very obvious relationship to one another and, and you know otherwise the 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 story that we were trying to tell wouldn't wouldn't work and the other the other thing is i'm not sure that i i would have known how to write music for a pre-existing um film i've never had to do that before and that's very unforgiving and it was a challenge for me to try to figure out sort of musically what the visual timing Ought to be and how I how long I felt like each scene should last and reflecting that in the music. I mean that you know that was a, a considerable challenge, but I think it would be you know an order of magnitude more difficult for me to construct um, music around uh, timing that that already existed, and that would really I feel like lock me into certain tempos and and certain um, time signatures in a, in a way that uh, would have been less satisfying for for me to grapple with i feel like what we did is closer to um you know often in uh old school animation like old school warner brothers or walt disney animation the music did come first uh and it was you know it it was very similar to our process there would be a storyboard and like carl stalling would write the music and then they would animate to the music because uh, there's such a a close relationship in those um those old animated films between the music and the action on screen often there's 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 a lot of those um old um animated shorts with no dialogue at all and no sound effects like any kind of representation of of like the guy falling down the stairs comes from the xylophone right
1: right or human speech you know the, right. the trumpet player or whatever
2: it might right, be right yeah. right so so there were, there was a lot of that and um so as I was casting about for models for this kind of work, that's something that I gravitated towards, even though, like, obviously, um, the sort of subject that we're grappling with and the whole tone of the work is a lot darker than, you know, you might find in (laughs) merry melodies. The the structure of of the work, of the relationship between the music and the visuals was uh, something that uh, I paid very close attention to. And also, um, you know, ballet, especially the early Stravinsky ballets where, um, you know, there's, there's like a, a one-to-one relationship between like, you know, hearing, uh, uh Petrushka's fanfare and, and seeing Petrushka on stage, you know? And so there, like, there's, there's obviously that, that's music that, um, is created for the stage and, um, the music, um. Was written with a, a particular scenario in mind and was uh, intended to convey the action in a certain way, and then uh, it gets passed off to the choreographer, who then is responsible for interpreting that and representing the music um, in you know in real time. And so there's like there's a, a storytelling aspect to you know Petrushka and the Wright and, and the Firebird. That is uh, that was really attractive to me as I was trying to figure out how to um, how to convey a narrative in, in music uh, because it's it's very different from the kind of work that I had done previously. Like uh, narrative has always been important to me, um, but in an abstract way. You know, the, the music that I had been been writing it had never uh, I had never sort of had it pegged to like specific concrete events in the world. Like people walking down a street or like, you know, entering a building or, or, uh, you know, a, a tower being constructed and like shots of, you know, someone with a welding gun or a jackhammer, that kind of stuff. I'd never, I'd never dealt with anything that concrete before. So it was helpful for me to see like how, um, Stravinsky dealt with similar challenges in, in his ballets, And like, it's never a bad thing to steal from Stravinsky. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested uh, In knowing
1: more about that And knowing more about the process of composition When there is such a fixed narrative When there is actually a story A linear story that you're writing music for Can you talk a little more about how you How you actually tackled that How you, how much, for example, any one mood or setting In the story uh, influenced the music Whether you worked against the mood sometimes Or so on and so forth
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question You know, I um, I found that that kind of like disconnect between uh, the music and and the visuals, like when you 're sort of working um, at at cross purposes, trying to create like a sense of irony between like what you see on screen and and what the music is actually doing. Um, I found that 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 was actually uh, in a, in most cases, I felt that that would weaken what we were trying to do simply because th- the visuals and the music were the only two. Elements happening, and there was there wasn't anything else to play against. There wasn't dialogue to play against. There wasn't sort of a soundtrack to play against, and so like a lot of the that kind of the 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 um sort of counterpoint that might happen in a in a film score between like what you're seeing and what you're hearing, um, was less effective in in this context. And so it's a lot more it's a lot more literal than a film score would be. I mean, there's there, there's a term. Or, um uh, scores that that are um sort of too on the nose in in a film context which is called Mickey Mousing, right which of course comes from those old cartoons because everything is underlined in the score, everything comes from the score but um that's because in a film with dialogue and a soundtrack and whatnot there's much more opportunity to let the uh, the visuals carry the story in a particular way and to use the the music to set up a different kind of mood but um for the most part, in Brooklyn Babylon, because of the lack of other elements to play against, uh, for the most part, the music is, is, is sort of supporting things in a fairly literal way. Uh, there's, there's moments of, um, foreshadowing and there's moments of sort of disconnect between, deliberate disconnect between music and visuals, but, um, I use those fairly sparingly, uh, because in, for the most part, it, it was necessary just to really kind of underline uh, and support um, the action on screen and to try and have like a very close relationship between what you're seeing and what you're hearing, uh, just in order to convey the story. very difficult to convey uh, a story i should say the animation there's there's hardly any text there's like at each uh beginning of each chapter there's like a projected title for the chapter which might be you know the neighborhood or the tallest tower in the world but other than that there's you know it's not like a silent film where there's you know um sort of dialogue captions, um, um, sort of dialogue titles or whatever. There's none of that. It's all told wordlessly. And, um, just making that story maximally clear was a very big challenge for Daniel and for myself. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very, uh, And, and it was a big priority for us too. You know, it would have been easy to do something kind of more abstract where we weren't trying to literally deal with the story and just dealing kind of more with kind of images and a visual vocabulary of shadow and light and, and whatnot. But, uh, in our case, we, we had a very specific story that we wanted to tell and we wanted to tell it in a way that, you know, would, would get the audience invested in it. Um, and so part of getting invested in it is to really have that that sort of close correspondence between visuals and, and music and to let the music really reveal the inner lives of the characters.
1: Could you talk about, uh, once all the, the fantastic amount of work that's required to, to put this show on, to create the work, the logistics of it, once you were actually there on the stage and it was happening, will you talk about the, the emotional experience you had of, of being there in the show? What it was like for you when it was actually coming off in the moment
2: well so we had a uh, the first full performance of of brooklyn babylon was this sort of special preview performance uh on october 22nd uh, at suny purchase and that was you know the first time where it all came together where we had you know the full band on the stage and daniel painting live and and the the um, animation projected and like all of the and, you know, the lighting and, and the costumes, and there's so many moving parts, so many opportunities for catastrophe, essentially. And, um, it, it had been like that, that sort of week of preparation was the most intensely stressful week of my, of my life, you know. Um, I'm someone who is, uh, very, you know, I I think a lot of musicians are, are very bad with deadlines and we're always working up right until the very last minute. So, um, you know, even though it's music that I had started working on and, and had been working on for almost a year, I hadn't finished writing the um, epilogue for the piece, uh, the last bit of music that we hear, um, until the Monday – before that first performance so then the the performance was Saturday I finished writing the music on Monday and brought it in for the band for the, for the first time and I w- I was also at the same time trying to work out um uh in order like one of the sort of technical challenges was how do you keep the visuals in sync with the music without playing to a click track and you know we definitely didn't want to play to to a click track live because it just sucks so much energy out of the band, and and being, we should just
1: tell people that a click track is effectively a metronome that people are hearing right. that is enfor- enforcing the tempo.
2: Right. So, so there's there's no flexibility there in in the click track. Um, you know, it it and um, it 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 forces everyone to um sort of lock in to to the drummer in a way that that is a little bit unnatural. And live, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of kind of like a conversation. Especially amongst 18 musicians, a conversation about the tempo and where the tempo should be. And like maybe the bass player is feeling it a little bit on top and maybe the lead trumpet player is feeling it a little bit behind. And you know, it, it's part of the, the natural human dynamic of having a big band and that energy kind of gets sucked away if, if. You know, the drummer has to play to a click track and everyone has to kind of lock in. And the the reason for using a click track, which is used in most film soundtracks, is because of the unforgiving nature of music that has to link up exactly to uh, visual moments. So the way we got around that was to carve up the animation into short burst segments of about 15 to 20 seconds. Uh, and then have those bits of animation be cued by our stage manager who would sort of be following along in the score and then like a bar before the next segment of animation would call go on the animation and then, uh, would call up to, um, the video technician who would then sort of basically hit the space bar, hopefully on the right beat and then the animation would proceed. So there's, um, Obviously, a lot of opportunities to go wrong because there were hundreds and hundreds of these cues. Uh, and it's a very difficult score with a lot of changing time signatures and tempos and whatnot. Um, so one of, one of the things I was doing that week, in addition to trying to finish writing the music, was sitting down with our score manager, with our stage manager and, uh, sort of practicing the score with her and teaching her, like, okay, like, here's how you can, here's how you can hear that cue. I was also designing the, the segments at the same time. So, like, I would, I would sort of get home from rehearsal, um, uh, sort of try to figure out, like, okay, so chapter three is going to be divided into these twelve segments occurring at these sort of points in the time code and then sending those off to, um, our our video uh, designer and our stage manager. And then sort of once she had had a chance to practice, I was sitting down with the score with her and like making sure everything was, was okay. Um, and going back and forth between New York and, and SUNY purchase and trying to make all of these things happen and trying to, um, you know, just also really internalize conducting the score myself and just making sure that, that I, I was absolutely clear on on what we were doing and and that I that I could be flawless uh with all the cues that I was giving and the conducting and and like just starting everything at the correct tempo because it's a 1 hour continuous piece of music and it takes an enormous amount of concentration to be able to like get through that much unforgiving um very structured music you know there's there's a real like mental discipline that that I needed to acquire to uh to make that happen. At the end of the, you know, like really, I, I was deadly worried <laughs> that it would be absolutely catastrophic. I mean, I, beyond deadly worried, I was convinced that it was, that this first performance, <laughs> there was no way that it would come off. Like, it was going to, it was going to be just epic. Uh, like just epic fail, as they say on the internets. And, uh, You know, and, and right up until our dress rehearsal, I was like, this is, this is not gonna work. This is just, just, this, you know, and, and it would be like, okay, so we tried, basically. And then, miraculously, everything came together incredibly well, um, for that performance at, at SUNY Purchase. You know, there's, there's something to, like, the stress of, of having to, um, you know, having to put on something where you know you, like, everyone in the band kind of knew, like, we're a little bit underprepared for this, and uh, certainly in the technical aspects. You know, our stage manager—I'm sure, like Lindsay, uh, our stage manager—was just sweating bricks and just like, I don't think sweating bricks is an actual term, but <laughs> it is now. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think bullets is what people normally sweat. Yes, in club yes, yes. You do something else to the bricks. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but you know, there, there, there. There's like an energy that happens there where everyone's like, okay, like you know damn we really got to pull it together and uh and we did we 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 pulled it together and then just at the at the end of that performance it was just like breathless with with just exhaustion and exhilaration of like this like we we actually pulled it off (laughs) like i can't believe that just happened um and it was you know it was fantastic and then being able to take that energy into the the performances um for the next wave festival and being able to do it four nights in a row is just uh uh wonderful and just like really um you know also just from from the point of view of, of 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 like being able to take this music and and refine it night after night it would it would have been so great to to be able to to have like a run that lasted a you know uh, two weeks or a month or, or whatnot just cause being able to like hit the same music in front of an audience night after night um, is something that bands used to be able to do when when they went on the road and, and you know had a long string and that's that's another sort of part of, of, of old-school jazz culture that that is absent now and so just being able to have the opportunity to, to have a four-night run somewhere is something that's very rare for us. And to be able to, um, to have a four-night run of, of something that's, that's so, so uh, emotionally intense uh, was a whole other trip.
1: I wanted to ask you about uh, an upcoming double bill if you could tell folks what it is and then I want to ask you a question about the the music that is going to happen at it.
2: Sure. so on uh, March 9th, um, we're going to be appearing at Galapagos Art space uh, in Dumbo in Brooklyn, actually quite near the Dumbo carousel. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's a double bill with uh, a really great um, new music group called Antisocial Music. And when I first moved to New York, um, I talked earlier in the interview about some of these um, actually I think it was in the last interview, in the Jazz DIY interview <laughs> uh, about so. Uh, you know, but I talked, uh, you know, when I first moved to New York I uh, encountered a lot of um, classical musicians who were very unlike the um, classical musicians I had previously encountered and um, really had like a much hipper attitude towards music making and anti-social music was definitely one of those groups. And I, I saw, you know, some really awesome concerts that they were, um, you know, like, they were just like a really good vibe and, and there would be stuff where someone would bring in something really hard and they would start it and it would be like fucked up within three or four bars. And someone would like, you know, just throw up a hand and be like, yo <laughs> train wreck and start that again and And every everyone would just like laugh and and it, w- it there was like a real kind of you know fun communal um uh very like irreverent vibe to the thing and so uh, we had talked about doing this this double bill like we we talked about doing it for years, and i 'm really glad that it it 's finally happening and they 're bringing in some uh large ensemble music of their own stuff that um they did sort of uh in the early years of their existence, their group that was formed um like uh, i think in two thousand and one. And uh, they have this uh, music for eleven-piece uh, uh, ensemble that they're, they're reviving for this show that that hasn't been sort of hasn't gotten an airing in a, in a really long time. And in, in addition to some new stuff, and uh, for the secret society set, uh, we're going to be playing some of the music from Brooklyn Babylon that I've arranged into a, a suite, and we'll also be reviving some music written for the band by um, composers who are not me. Uh, last year we we premiered uh works written for Secret Society by Vijay Iyer and by uh David T. Little who's uh, a fantastic composer who uh has a, a group called Newspeak and um, writes uh you know his an opera called Soldier Songs and and writes a lot for um orchestra and um various chamber ensembles and is very prolific. And and he's written uh, a really great piece for secret society called conspiracy theory, and we'll be uh, reviving that uh, as well. So it's kind of showing off, I guess, a different aspect of, of secret society more sort of um, kind of re- um, giving a concert. That's really kind of on the seams of the contemporary new music scene and, and the contemporary jazz scene and trying to show some of the, the commonalities across like what, a group like Secret Society is trying to do and what a group like Antisocial Music is is trying to do.
1: I'm, I'm interested uh, about Secret Society playing music that you didn't write because it seems, to me at least, like a, a large portion of the point of Secret Society is that it is a musical expression of your brain. And so when the band is playing music from someone else's brain, is there something some inherent quality of secret society that makes it that makes it so that it's not just any 14 musicians or 18 musicians playing this other person's music but it is in fact secret society and there's a reason why there's something some character to the sound or the way the band interacts that is inherent in secret society itself
2: yeah i mean one of the things that i've been very fortunate um to have is a relatively stable band you know the the personnel of, of secret society is has has been very steady over the years and uh, it's it's um, helped us enormously to, to have that continuity of of musicians you know with a lot of uh, big bands it 's always a, a challenge to keep the same people together um, but you know, the group having sort of toured together and recorded together and having, you know, played so many shows together over the years, there is definitely a, uh, a musical connection amongst the members of the band that, that wouldn't be there if it were a pickup group. And, um, now, it's also true that, um, a lot of the, I guess, reflexes <laughs> of the people in the band are geared towards the music that I write. Like it's, I've sort of, um, over the years they they've um developed uh, a particular affinity for for my for the way i write and for the kind of challenges that i tend to throw at them and then uh, you know vijay's world is a completely different trip um and uh, and david's world is is a whole other thing and so i think it's you know it, it it's it's valuable um for them to to bring their perspective to that music, but there's definitely a, a sort of secret society perspective that that's been um, uh, developed over the years that um, that they uh, that they sort of infuse the music of these other composers with and I hope in a good way. <laughs>
1: My guest is the composer and band leader, Darcy James Argue, uh, who has a band called Secret Society. They have a record called Infernal Machines, which we've talked about on a previous episode of this show, uh, and also, obviously, some pretty amazing work since then. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, and I thank you for taking, I think it's been about 15 hours of your time to do these back-to-back interviews. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure. That's music from Brooklyn Babylon, the recent project of Darcy James Argue. Don't forget to go to jazzdiy.com to see the video interview with Darcy. It's a different interview, different questions, different answers. be funny if it were different questions, but the same answers. Uh, so that's at jazzdiy.com. And meanwhile, this is The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The show is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do become a member. The show really needs some new members at thejazzsession.com slash join. And then, meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for the 350th episode and the fifth anniversary episode of The Jazz Session.